Well, good morning again. Uh, We want to look into God's Word. Before we do that, would you join me in praying one more time? Lord, that uh, song is, is so powerful. The one who is mighty has done a great thing, and yet the greatness came in such a an unassuming package. One of the most remarkable things about Christmas is how unremarkable so many of the details are, given that the God of the universe would step into human skin, given that the holy ruler of everything would walk among us. It doesn't look like we would have anticipated. Pray that we would learn from that reality things that you want us to learn. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to your word. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is uh, obviously about the coming of a baby, and uh, babies, um, the birth of babies can look a lot of different ways. Uh, Some of you will be familiar with Greg Allman, who said he was born in the backseat of a Greyhound bus rolling down Highway 41. I'm, I'm thinking that's probably just poetic license and uh, it wouldn't be a normal way to be born, uh, although certainly some emergency births have happened in all kinds of places. Uh, I think a more typical setting is there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. I remember when our, each of our daughters was born, and especially the first one, because that's the first time you go through this, and so you're trying to figure it all out, and, and it's a little bit more stressful, a little more tense, and uh, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment, and we had to move to a two-bedroom apartment, and we had a whole room set aside for this person that was no bigger than this, and, and it was a big room, and there was uh, this whole bed for this little tiny person, and they had this big old closet, and uh, you know we'd hang Amanda's pajamas in there, those little footy pajamas, and they're at that point no longer than that, and it, they don't take up any room. It's like all this space and everything's been shaped around the coming of this child and this uh, planning that's gone into it, a lot of anticipation, a lot of joy, and everything's done to make this the best experience and the most um, joyful experience that we can have. And I realize that some of us have had actually pretty painful experiences in the process, but we would want that joyful experience that we are preparing for. And... um, There's certain things that you just expect, which is why the story of Jesus actually ought to arrest our attention and put us onto the scent of, hey, something more is going on here than we might expect from the very beginning. Uh, In Genesis 2-7, if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along. There's just one verse we're going to start with, and um, it seems innocuous enough at first. We uh, we read this verse every Christmas time, and, and we're familiar with it but it's actually really stunning. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. That's not what you would expect. Didn't see that coming would be a normal response at that stage. Here's the rule of the universe entering the world and he's born in a a borrowed room with animals, the smell of hay and, and animals and manure, and, and he's laid in a feed box. He's wrapped in cloths and laid there in the feed box, and, and uh, we have all these wonderful hallmarky kind of pictures of it, and, and it was a beautiful moment. It always is a beautiful moment, but um, it was certainly unexpected for the king to come in and be born that way, and maybe to update the language just a little bit to help us get a sense of what that's like, it would be um, the baby's about to be born. It's not just any baby. It's the king, and, and uh, yeah, you can use the garage and uh, wrap him in cloths and lay him in the dog dish. There's 
There's the picture. It's, uh, it's, it's not elegant. It's not grand. It's not what you would expect. It's, it's actually pretty surprising. And uh, I think in that, there's something important for us to um, pay attention to, right? They, they do that. Why? Well, because there's no room for them in the inn. We, we hear that, of course. But why? There's, there's more to that. I mean, God has had, from all eternity, planning for this day, he had more than enough time to get better reservations than he had. Why does it unfold that way? He's, he's shaping, Mary and Joseph are responding to things going on around them the best they can. God's actually shaping them, and he shapes the story so that his son is born in a very uh, unexpected setting, nothing grand, nothing impressive about it at all. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it, 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 it blows up our expectations and it blows up the narratives that we bring to Christmas. Uh, we're all living our life with a story of how things ought to be. And there's the grand story of how things ought to be and then there's the story of my life and how it ought to be and there's, uh, there's components of that that we just assume and we guard and we pursue. And here in this moment in time, God enters into humanity and he blows up those narratives. It's like nothing's as expected and I think there's something important for us to grab from that. In fact, if you look just a little bit further, if you have a copy of the scriptures, um, I don't think we have this one on your screen, but I'll read it for you. Um, it's a few weeks after the, um, the birth of Jesus, and they're supposed to go, Mary and Joseph are supposed to take Jesus to the temple for his dedication time. And so it says in verse 22 of Matthew 2, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now that last little phrase may not seem like much, but it actually tells us a whole lot. It tells us that Mary and Joseph were peasants. They came from this uh, unimportant and overlooked community, this little village called Nazareth. And then because of these grand workings in the world, they have to move to this other unimportant and mostly unnoticed village called Bethlehem. It does have a heritage at least because David was born there, but it's still a, a, a little village, not significant as things go other than for its historical ties. And here's this peasant couple moving around and, and they're being moved by grand things. They actually have to have a detour out of the country and come back and they move back to their first insignificant village and they are peasants. They are not uh, people of prominence. They're not people of importance. They're not people that if a dignitary came into town, the dignitary wouldn't seek them out. If, if there was a need to get the town rallied to do something, it's not likely that they'd come to Marion Joseph's door and say, you're the leader, you're the one everyone looks to, come and, come and, and hear us. And, and we find that actually embedded in those words. It's a pair of turtle doves, a pair of pigeons that they offer. Because in the Old Testament law, when a firstborn son was born, those that had any kind of financial security and stability were supposed to offer a lamb. And those who were on the margins, because they couldn't do that, would offer the doves instead. And then those who were in abject poverty, they actually could offer just grain. So we know that Mary and Joseph aren't at the lowest possible level, but they're well down and they're just, they're kind of common folk. If, you, if they get a report card on the standing in life, they're like C minus kind of 
people in their culture. They're not the ones you would expect to be granted the privilege of raising the king. Now, we do know that their character was extraordinary, and God chose them for reasons. But those are things that he can see that we can't. Their neighbors wouldn't have, they might have known their reputation, might have known something of their character, but they can't see inside. They look at the outside just like we do, and there's nothing about Mary and Joseph that would naturally draw you. We might think certain things, but we don't have any reason to think that Mary was necessarily the prettiest one in her community, or that she was necessarily the smartest one in her community. She might have been very average. There's no reason to think otherwise. Joseph is a builder. Was he a great builder? Was he a craftsman? Is he the guy that they're calling to say, I need this important public building erected? Or was he more like a handyman that says, hey, you know, if you need something really complex, you need this guy, he's the professional, call him, here's his card. But if you need a few things done around here, I, I'm happy to do that for you. I'll, I'm handy and I can, I can do some building. We don't have an idea of how good a builder he was. I'm sure he was competent. I'm sure he had integrity. But there's no reason to think there's anything special about him. He's just a common builder from a common village marrying a common young woman. And they're raising what looks to the outside like a common child in a common setting. And maybe kind of at the bottom end of common. And even the birth is uncommon in that it's not all that impressive. Born amongst animals, put in a feed box. Not, not the way we would expect. Didn't see that coming. If God's going to enter the world, the creator of the universe, who's glorious and holy and, and all-powerful and, and who dwells in, in unapproachable light and who's beyond our understanding and our reckoning, and if he's going to choose to enter this world... That's not the way we would expect it. We would expect something more grand. And the story's actually woven through with this theme that God's not looking at the grand. That's not where he's focusing. And all the expectations of their day were being exploded by this. They all had their narratives, and here's who he should be talking to, here's who he shouldn't be talking to, here's what this ought to look like, and it's not doing any of that. God is kind of flipping the whole thing on its head, blowing up their narratives and saying, the, 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 the story you're trying to live by isn't going to work. Here's the story I want you to have. And, and a, a foundational truth, a foundational truth that uh, pervades every relationship with God, every interaction with God, every encounter that you and I might have with God is this. God does not pursue me, and he doesn't relate to me because of my goodness or his need. He pursues me and he relates to me because of his goodness and my need. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's not anything in me that draws him other than he just loves me. The story of God relating to us isn't one of compulsion, it's one of compassion. He just loves us. Right? He's not impressed by us, but he is enamored with us. And so the impressive people, the mighty people, they figure into the story, in, in this particular case, mostly as just background. It's not that he loves Caesar Augustus or Herod less than he does Mary and Joseph. It's just that Caesar Augustus and Herod are blinded by their own sense of achievement, and they're not open or responsive, whereas some of the more humble people are. But he's coming for all of them, and he's coming on the same, same basis. He's coming on the basis of his goodness 
and their need. And it's that way today too. Every bit of my relationship with God starts there. It starts in who he is and what I need. And in order for me to come to a place of having a real relationship with God, um, I have to come to that understanding. I mean, that's what Jesus says are the poor in spirit, really. They, they understand they've got nothing, right? The poor in spirit are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. And every one of us has to come to a place where we realize, <clears throat> I have nothing. All the things that I think are great aren't, aren't impressing God. And all the things that I'm worried about that are so bad, they're not an obstacle for God. Um, I am just poor, have nothing to offer. I need him to bless me because of who he is. That's called grace, by the way, when God is moved to do things for me because of who he is with no regard for what I've done. I don't merit it at all. Right? That's what moves God. He, and he's moved by my need. My need. That's called mercy, biblically, when he's moved by my need. Not only don't I have anything to give, I need that's the poor in spirit. Those are the ones who come to faith. Those are the ones whose lives are transformed. The Christmas message has got that gospel woven right through it. He doesn't come to the high and mighty. He doesn't, he's not impressed with anyone. He's blowing all the expectations because he's coming with a different view. His coming is out of his goodness, and it's for our need. It's not responding to our goodness or to fill some need he has. He's not lucky to have me on his team. He's not looking to fill out the perfect um, grouping and my skill set would be helpful or I'm, he's impressed with my piety and my, my religious behavior or my accomplishments. Or, you know, we have all these narratives. We live by these narratives actually in our lives so much, the things that we think define us. And, and in some ways they do. They're, they're part of who we are and, and it, it, it navigates our lives, right? I, I act certain way, expect certain things, feel like people should respond to me a certain way, I respond to them a certain way because of these understandings of myself. And, and you've got them too. And, and I think one of the things that we can do with the Christmas story is bring those narratives, the things that we live by, and let the Christmas story collide with that because he's blowing up their expectations. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes who have so many conflicts with Jesus later think they're doing the right thing. They're trying to be holy. They're trying to be uh, pure, but in, in the process, they've lost the heart of things. The Sadducees think they're doing the right thing. They're trying to guard the power and integrity of their country, which is what God would want, only in the process, they lose the heart of that. And the lowly people that nobody pays any attention to who have no pretensions, they're the ones that fill the story of Jesus' birth. The narratives that they're operating on are, are, are messed up. And if they come with that sense of, I'm Herod, I'm the king, here's what should happen, it's not gonna work because that's not the way God works. I'm the high priest, here's what should happen. It, it doesn't work that way. And the narratives that you and I have that we live our lives with, we sometimes bring them in our relationship to God. And they can get in the way initially of coming to a relationship with God. They can keep us from that place of understanding I've got nothing, I just need a savior. And then as we embark on this new life in Christ, they can creep back in and become these things that subtly um, move us away from living in the gospel, living in the fact that God's moved by his goodness and by our need not by our goodness or by his need. I don't need to perform. I don't need to have a certain life pattern or style. My behavior matters, my holiness matters, but that's not the foundation, the foundation is God. 
But these things are deep in us and they shape us in so many ways. I, I want you to think maybe about some of the things that shape you and, and bring them to this Christmas story and let the, let the kind of incongruity of what we're reading here challenge the tidy picture that you may have in your mind. Maybe God's not gonna operate the way you expect. Maybe you're not going to indebt him to you in any way. Maybe you're not going to impress him. And maybe he's not put off by the things you think he's put off by just because everyone else might find themselves there. What are the things that have shaped you? Bring those into the light and let God, let God meet you there and, and free you from the tyranny of those things, free you from the burden of those things, free you from the shame of those things, free you from the shackles to those things. Some of them may be good. I was thinking about my own story and what are the things that have shaped me and the more formative things. Um, and I thought of one good, one bad, I guess you could call them good and bad, they're, they're just what they are, but they have negative and positive effects. Um, so one thing that uh, could be viewed as good that has shaped me and how I view myself and how I engage the world, I, I grew up, I was always a smart kid, right? I was always the one who did well in class. Uh, depending on how you looked at it, I set the curve or I broke the curve and I messed it up for other people. Uh, if we did a group project, everyone wanted to be in my group. Because for whatever reason, God granted me a certain kind of mental horsepower that is useful in certainly school settings. And, and, and some of you share that narrative, and it's really formative. It, it's how you view the world. It's, it's how you find your standing. It's not the only thing that I have, but it's one of the things. And I remember when I was in 11th grade, I was in a, a lab group with a, a girl in the class who happened to mention her age, and it created a crisis. I, it was an existential crisis where I had to say, where do I stand? How do I fit? Because she was talking about how she, was, she had to be the youngest person in the class. Because she skipped a grade. Well, I was always the youngest person in the class because I skipped a grade. And now here's this other person, and what does that mean? You know, from this distance, I look at it, it means nothing. It means she did, you did, it doesn't matter. If she's older, you're old, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but at that point in my life, it's like, I'd never, I, I, here's, I always, here's how I fit, and here's how people are going to respond to me. Here's, here's, what, here's what unlocks success in life for me, and, and maybe it's not going to work anymore. Maybe there's something different. There's a crisis, right? Didn't have to be, but there was, because something that was given to me became too defining. And, and here's the danger in my relationship with God is now I can be that same kind of person and say, well, God's really lucky to have me. He chose me because he needed somebody to really think hard about these things and, and fix things and, and solve problems and have the ideas. And it's like, he doesn't need me. And he's not impressed with that. And I know that. That's my theology. But somehow, just deep within me, there's this thing that I, I always fill this role. I always function this way. And so God's going to respond to me in light of that. But it's not so. It's not so. When I went to... Uh, School, college, I, you know, I got um, a degree in apologetics is one of the things I studied, and uh, there's a nice shiny sticker on that diploma, because I did really well. I'm a shiny sticker kind of diploma guy. Uh, when I got my degree in New Testament, I didn't get a shiny sticker, <laughs> and that was a crisis, because I'm supposed to be the shiny sticker guy. Why isn't there a shiny sticker on my, on my diploma? I still remember my grade point average, which was 30-some years ago, is uh, 4.47. It's like, oh, I mean, it's not 
terrible grade point average, but if you're a shiny sticker guy, it's very disappointing, and it creates a problem. It's like, why did that happen? And, oh, here's why. I'm working full-time, and I'm married, and I'm taking 16 units, and I'm doing a thesis, and, and, and. And I have to have this justification because I can't be threatened that something might be wrong because this is who I am. This is how I define myself. This is how I see myself. This is how other people see me. And if that's threatened or if people don't respond rightly or it's not understood or maybe it's not working, I, I have a crisis. Uh, a bad one that, that's definitive for me is um, sometimes, actually it already happened. <laughs> already happened. I was telling the people on the lawn this happens to me pretty much every Sunday that I preach. And uh, usually it's by the end of the day or no later than the, sometime on Monday. Um, almost always I just feel like a failure. Like, what a loser. What a, you know, I, I think about the things that I said or the things that I did, and I'm supposed to speak for you, God, and that was so stupid. Why did I say that? Shut up, shut up, shut up. Those words actually sometimes come out of my mouth to myself as I kind of relive things and go, ah, why did I do that? And I just feel so small, like I've, I've blown it. I'm, I'm a loser. And um, that shapes me, Right? The good and the bad, the positive, the negative, they shape me. And there may be a measure of truth in those things, but they don't, they aren't as foundational as they feel to me. Now, you may not relate to my story. Maybe you do. Maybe the, the smart thing is, is your narrative, in which case you're probably thinking, I wonder if I'm smarter than him, and you're sick, you know? <laughs> but that's the point. We all are. Me too, right? There's, there's stuff that we have that's, maybe it's good but it has too much influence, or maybe it's not good, and it shapes us in ways that get in the way. We bring all that stuff, we bring ourselves to God, we've got our expectations, here's the world, here's how it all fits, and when Jesus shows up and he's not doing anything that's expected, he's not going to the important people, he's not going to the religious leaders, he's not born in a palace, everything is upside down, he's, he's undermining all of those narratives. And he's not saying, you know, the good things aren't good. He's just saying they're not foundational as you perceive them. And he's also not saying the bad things aren't hard. He's just saying they don't have to be the whole story. I'm here to do something fresh with anybody. Anybody who has a humble heart, and it'll come to me. Some of our stories um, get in the way. The very things that are good. And maybe, maybe for you, it's you're always the caring one. And people will entrust you with the fragile pieces of their life and are somehow helped by you. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. That's a wonderful gift from God. But then it takes on this whole life of its own and it has to define you. And it becomes a, it becomes a tyrant because now you've got to care here and you've got to care there. And I, am I caring enough? And am I failing? And what if I mess up? And, and, and it can also get in the way of, of actually relating to God. Just out of God's goodness and my need, it flips over. It's my goodness <laughs> and God's need. He needs me because he needs people like me to do this and that, and, and it, it messes everything up. When the king of the universe enters and flips everything on its head, comes with peasants, he says, your stories, your merits, they don't have the weight you think they do. I'm not worried about what I can get from you. I don't need your help. And by the way, your, your failings, they don't have the weight you think they do either. They're not going to get in the way. I'm not marching to the beat of your drum. Some of us are deeply marked by failings, pain, hardship. 
And sometimes those markings are very deep. Sometimes we've been victimized. And our whole life is shaped by the sense of I've been abandoned by my mother when I was a child. And everything is run through that grid and then we come to God and that gets in the way. Or um, I was abused by my neighbor and that gets in the way. Those are horrible things. Those are painful things. Those are things nobody should have to go through but some of us do. And they do shape us, they do mark us, but they don't have to be the final story. God is not living within the framework of our expectations. You're damaged, you don't get to do this. You've got it together, you get to do this. He's, he's blowing the whole thing up. Some of us have these commitments that we're trying to live out, right? That's what's driving us. I'm, I'm committed to always following through, always being faithful. I'm gonna be that one. Well, that's a wonderful virtue, but... What happens when I can't? Some of us are committed to, I'm just never gonna be vulnerable. Some, for some reason, something happened and I just can't afford to be vulnerable. So I'm gonna have extra money and savings, I'm gonna have extra insurance, my life's gonna be orderly and controlled, my to-do list is gonna be very clear, I'm gonna do my, you know, whatever it takes to protect me and my family and my household. And I'm, it's all about keeping the problem out. And, and I, I set myself up with this narrative that says, I just won't ever be vulnerable. And then I bring that into my relationship with God and that, that wreaks havoc. I have to be vulnerable with God, right? There's these things that are so much a part of the fabric of who we are and they set up a, many of them set up kind of a pecking order in our culture, a hierarchy and a aspirations that we wanna live by and a, a narrative arc and we then, then we come to God. Then we expect God's gonna like me because I'm, I'm doing my devotions, I'm being religious, I'm being faithful. Or God's not gonna like me because I really blew it. And the story of Christmas is the gospel. God entered the world not because he was moved by our goodness, but because he was moved by his goodness. Not because he had a need, but because we had a need. He's not compelled, he's compassionate. And, and lest you think I'm, I'm putting too much weight on these, um, these couple of little words, you know, Jesus being born and put in a manger and, and then, uh, you know, having the two turtle doves. It's like, no, this is actually a major part of this narrative. It's woven through all different kinds of places. Take a look in Luke chapter two, if you have a Bible. Verse one, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. If you were to ask knowledgeable people, educated people on this topic, give me the 10 most influential leaders in all of human history. I'm pretty sure that almost all of them would put his name on there. And he's got a, a month named after him. I don't have a month named after me. In fact, it's like a lot of, a, it's our favorite month, that's our vacation month. We get to go away in the month of Augustus, yes! He gets the name, it's a title, it's a, an appellation because he is such a grand and magisterial figure, a leader who essentially pulls Rome into a whole new shape and form that will dominate the world for centuries. He is Caesar Augustus. He is the great man of his generation and of almost any generation. 
And God is now going to enter the world. The ruler of the universe is going to come in to make changes, to do good things, to, to, to shift it around. You would think if he was going to talk with anyone, if he was going to encounter anyone, if he was going to partner up with anyone, it would be Caesar Augustus. And Caesar is just a footnote. He doesn't get any lines in the script. He doesn't get much time on stage. He just kind of sets things up. The next verse. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now we've got a governor. He's the same. He's a footnote, just part of setting the scene. You know who does get attention? Who do get lines? Who, who are important to the, the flow of the story? Obviously, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are central, but the other people God invites in. The other people God writes into the story, tells us something about the story itself. In verse eight of chapter two, it says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. Not to Caesar, not to Quirinius, not to Herod, not to the high priest, to some peasant shepherds. Why? Well, God's not really interested in my resume, and he's not impressed with my reputation, and he's not even put off by my rap sheet. He is moved to enter this world because of his goodness. He shows his grace, and he is moved to enter this world because of our need. He shows us mercy. We don't have to be the high and mighty. We don't have to be the ones who have it together. We don't have to be any of those things. We just have to be humble. Sometimes our accomplishments get in the way. All of the narratives we live by can get in the way. I can think I'm too damaged for God to ever use. It's not true. He's not put off. He's not frightened. He's not squeamish. He'll never turn his back on me. Or God's fortunate to have me because I bring so much to the table. Not so. He doesn't need anything I've got. Now, he'll... he'll He'll work with those things, right? If I've got a terrible story, he will redeem that. And if, if I have good things, he's given those to me and he'll use those, but he's got to align them with his purposes. And he's not saying, what's your entry ticket? Show me why I should be talking to you. A, a God who shows up and is born amongst the animals in, a, in the equivalent of the dog dish isn't hung up on those things. He's come for something else. He's come just because he loves us. The story shows up in other places too. Matthew 2, the story looks like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, this is verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. Ah, here we go. We have another very important person. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, uh, more important people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, right? So here we've got, now the wise men are significant figures, but they're outsiders, they're not people that belong in this story. They're not worshipers of God. In fact, they're into astrology. They're into pagan worship. God meets them there. He speaks to them in terms they can understand and begins to draw them into and writes them into his story. 
but they're not what we would expect. They don't belong in the story like the high priest and the scribes that Herod consults with. They should be at the center. They're the ones who should most know about Messiah. They know where he's born. They just have no idea that he's been born. Really? He's been born? I didn't know that. Well, I guess it's going to be in Bethlehem. We do know that. Herod doesn't know. Like the most important thing in all of history has happened in their backyard, and it's like the Chamber of Commerce doesn't even know it. People came from far. Pagans, they don't even have a clue about what goes on in Israel. They're the ones who come, and the ones who should know don't know. Why? Because God's flipping the, flipping the scale, saying it's not about where you fit on the, you know, where you fit on the religious scale. Not about how your spiritual, I'm not impressed with your spirituality. I just want you. If you'll humble yourself, that's what I want. Here's, here's, here's the stunning truth that we need to keep in mind. Jesus did not come into the world looking for saints. He came into the world to make saints and to make saints out of anyone. Herod could have been, but he got in his own way. The high priest could have been, but he got in his own way. The shepherds humbled themselves and responded. They didn't expect any special access. Were surprised, I'm sure, when they got it. How cool is that? We don't have to live in palaces and have big titles and big estates. God cares for us. It's not what we expect. It's not the narrative. I didn't think I had a shot, but I do, because it's not about me. It's about him. That's woven into every dimension of the, of the Christmas story, maybe most stunningly in Matthew 1, where it gives us Jesus' family tree. And in that family tree, it lists all these different people. Many of them are kings, great rulers, um, and in the midst of that, it ends by saying, and then there's Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus. Prior to Mary, though, there's only four women listed in this whole big long list. Mary, of course, would be listed. Why are these other four women listed? It's a very male-dominant culture. They didn't do that usually. And then if you are going to list the women, why list these four? Why not somebody else? Why only four? There's a lot of questions, and I think that's important for us to look at. The four women that are listed are also probably outsiders, also probably Gentiles. Um, in verse 3, we get the name of one woman. Her name is Tamar. She was probably a Canaanite woman. She married Judah. She married into the family. She was written into the story, but she wasn't a person who was born into it. Um, in verse 5, we find Rahab is one of Jesus' ancestors. She's a citizen of the town of Jericho. She's a Canaanite. Then there's Ruth. She's a Moabite. She's not Jewish. None of these women have the right spiritual pedigree, so why are they in the story here? And then there's, um, in verse 6, we have one who's called the wife of Uriah. It doesn't even call out her name. It just says the wife of Uriah. We know it's Bathsheba. We know Uriah was a Hittite. He wasn't Jewish. So it's very possible, perhaps even likely, Bathsheba wasn't Jewish either. She's an outsider. These are all outsiders. These are not the people that should be in the story, and yet they are. These are not the people the king should be coming to, and yet he is. He shouldn't be coming the way he does, but he does. And all the things that we do that we think will impress him, or all the things that we do that we think will get us messed up and off the list, those aren't the point. That's what Christmas is about. It's about 
the gospel. It's about God saying, I'm moved by my goodness to show you love. And I am moved by your need. I'm not moved by you, my need. I don't need anything from you. And I'm not impressed by your goodness because it's not impressive. The worst of you, you don't put me off. The best of you, you don't impress me. This is different. This isn't about being compelled to do something. This is about compassion. I just love you. And I need you to just receive me. Right? These women also bring in one more important dimension that intersects with some of our narratives. Right? All of them are, we would say, damaged, maybe even dangerous. They have had horrible things happen to them. Some of them are victims, clearly. And then some of them, they may have done the things willfully. Right? And the stories are terrible. The worst of human condition. Tamar, her story is, is um, rooted in incest. Rahab, she was a prostitute. The one who's married to Uriah, that's the way of, of saying it's Bathsheba, but remember the story. She has an adulterous relationship and her lover murders her husband. You know, if they made these women's lives into movies, I wouldn't go see them because I don't see those kinds of movies. And yet that's the world they were from. And Jesus writes them into his genealogy. First, he chooses them to be his ancestors. None of us choose anything about those that come before. We get to influence what comes behind. Jesus is the only one that said, no, I get to choose what comes before too. And I want these to be part of my ancestry. And then Matthew, I don't want you to talk about, I don't, I don't want you to talk about Sarah. I don't want you to talk about Rachel. I don't want you to talk about Rebecca. I don't want you to talk about Leah. If you had four women you wanted to include, you would include those. No, 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 no. I want you to throw in Tamar, and I want you to throw in Rahab, and I want you to throw in Bathsheba, because I want people to understand I'm here for anyone. I identify with all of you. And Ruth, Ruth had such stellar, stellar character, a wonderful, wonderful person, but she was a Moabite. The Moabites had done such evil to Israel, they weren't allowed to be part of the Israelite community. And in a world where they don't forget things, that memory lingers long, and the memory that would have hung over it even more is the entire nation was birthed out of incest. It's like the whole story, all of these things, all of these women's lives are marked with victimization and, and at least some of them with choices that would be so shameful, the kinds of things. When, you, when we look at our narrative, some of us have things that we look at and say, how could God possibly want a relationship with me? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to put that really central in the story. I want to blow up all the narratives you guys are living by. You're not gonna earn your way into anything. Let go of that idea. You're also not gonna mess it up so much that I'm gonna turn my back on you. Let go of that idea. Let's start fresh. You know, whatever good you have, wonderful, use it. But first let's line it up with what's reality. Whatever terrible thing has happened or whatever terrible thing you've done, let's deal with it. Let's redeem that. I have come the mighty king born into a feed box, turning everything up on its ear, totally breaking all the expectations because I'm doing this simply out of love. If you have your Bible or it should be up on the screen, Luke chapter one is where I'd like to end. And this is Mary's song of praise when Gabriel tells her she's gonna have the baby Jesus. And it's got this theme woven through it. 
When Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't come for the powerful, he doesn't come for the pretty, he doesn't come for the pious, and he doesn't come for the perfumed, he comes for us. He is not there for the mighty, he's there for anyone. And mostly that's the unremarkable, that's the unsung, that's the uncouth, that's the unnoticed, that's where the story centers. People who feel run over, people who feel passed over, people who feel left over, people who just want to do over. That's who he reaches out to. We're so dysfunctional, we're damaged, we're dangerous and even deranged. That's who he reaches out for. The story of Christmas isn't tidy, it's messy. Because we're messy. And woven through that is God will work on our behalf. That's why he's come. And here's what Mary says. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, the one who is mighty has done great things, but shocking things. You didn't come the way we would expect, and you didn't respond the way we would think, and you still don't. We haven't messed our lives up so much that you can't work, and we haven't done anything that indebts you to us. We just come to you as needy people, knowing that you're moved by our need, not by yours. We come to you as people who are very mixed, and ultimately our good is is not all that good, really. It's riddled with evil motives and all kinds of human failings. But it's not our good, it's your good that moves you. And so we come, we wanna, we wanna be those humble for whom you do mighty things. May we live in the freedom of the gospel. And may we worship you as the God of the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.